real, real soon. All right, so 1 Corinthians 13 is, or 15 is where we are tonight, and we've been talking about the resurrection. Uh, so we're gonna, I'm going to read this chunk, 20 down to 28, um, and we'll talk through some of these things uh, again tonight. So here's what it says. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been um, put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all and in all. This is a really deep passage of scripture. It talks about eternity. It talks about the end of time. It talks about the Godhead, we get a little peek into you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And if your mind doesn't get blown as you contemplate these things, then you're probably not thinking. Because as we start to talk about you know, God the Father placed all things under God the Son, and then God the Son turns the authority back over to God. But I thought they were one, but they're three. Yes, exactly. I don't, yeah, I don't get it. But that's kind of like gives us the invitation to dig into some of these thoughts uh, and talk about these things, as well as the idea that we've been... Uh, really focused on as Paul has gone through this, the resurrection uh, and our promise of resurrection. I wonder if our uh, testimony in the world, if our way of interacting with the world represents people who believe that they will be, even after they die, they will live. That we will be brought to life and we will live eternally in, in resurrected bodies that are made whole and complete. And that eternity will cause all the pains and the troubles and the trials of this life to, to, to fade into nothingness, no matter how hard my life is. I wonder if we really live like that. Or if we just kind of nod along when we're like, yeah, you know, I'm going to heaven when I die and, and God loves me and I've accepted Jesus as my Savior and now I've got to go deal with life. Paul brings these things with this fantastic flourish. It's, it's a very Pauline kind of flourish. It's, it, it, it just builds and builds and builds on itself, and it keeps kind of circling back and, and kind of elevating the conversation. But at the same time, it's so deep as it's enthusiastic and exuberant, and that's very like the Apostle Paul. And so, you know, sometimes people are like, well, Paul says he didn't speak well. I, I think Paul was maybe uh, underplaying some of the giftedness he had because what you read as you read how Paul writes is that ability in words to translate such immense ideas and, and bring them to bear with enthusiasm, encouragement, excitement for what we're looking forward to one day. And so that's kind of what we're looking at here. It begins, as we talked about last week, the fact that Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. The Corinthians were having a debate, is there resurrection from the dead? Paul says, shouldn't even be a debate among you. You are believers, you are Christians, because you, by definition, believe in the resurrection of the dead, because to be a Christian, you have to believe Christ rose from the dead. And if you don't believe Christ rose from the dead, then you can't believe that Christ is who he said he is, because Christ tied his claims to deity, his claims to salvation, to be the Savior, to this miracle that was going to come, and, and this idea that he would die, but he would be raised back to life. And without that, he's just another guy. And so 
there is no just there is no room here. There are room. There's room in a lot of areas of Christianity for shades and, and differences. And you know, how many should it be a plurality of elders, or should it be a pastor, or should it be a, a trustee board in the the church polity, or you know, do you baptize by sprinkling, or do you baptize by immersion, or do you baptize little little infants, or do you baptize adults? There's there's shades in those things, and there's reasons for those debates. And somebody can disagree with me on some of those topics, and you know, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, absolutely, no question about it. But if you disagree that Jesus bodily rose from the dead just as he said, you can't be a Christian. You can't be saved because it disables everything that he said. You cannot come to him by faith and put your faith wholly in him and deny one of the absolute cores of the story of Jesus Christ. You just can't. So there are some who will be saved and there are some who will be lost. And what you believe about the resurrection is at the very core of where you land on that issue. So uh, he goes into, well, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And first fruits, if you remember last week, we talked about first fruits. What does first fruits represent? What's the idea of first fruits when it says Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep? Anybody remember? The first what? The first of the harvest, it was, we looked at it in Leviticus, I think it's 23, 20, yeah, Leviticus 23, where there was an offering that had to be made as your harvest began to be produced, that you would take it in a recognition that God is the one who produced this, and you would go give it to the Lord. It would be wasted, so to speak, before the Lord. It would be given away, um, and, and there was an act of faith in that, believing that this represented the rest of the harvest, that, that I, by faith, was going to receive the rest of the harvest as from God, that kind of idea. And similarly, in this discussion, Jesus Christ's resurrection is the first part of the harvest, but the rest of the harvest is coming. What's the rest of the harvest? We are, right? So he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He was the, the first one, the representation that the rest is coming by the power of God, just like the harvest. The rest is coming by the power of God. But Jesus did it, and that's the guarantee that you and I will be raised. Uh, even, though we even though we die, even though our bodies fade away, we will be transformed. We will be, like he says at the end of this chapter, this mortal will put on immortality. This perishable will put on imperishable. And so whether I die or not, this body is going to be changed. And one day, if I've died, I will be raised. And one day, if I haven't died, I will be changed. And it says in a twinkling of an eye. So we're getting to that, but he comes, he's talking here about how Christ is the first fruits of that. And so there's this, you know, he went through this whole idea in the beginning of the chapter. There's a basis for knowing that Christ rose from the dead. And so because we know Christ rose from the dead, we know we will rise from the dead. And he said, since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. Talks about the, the humanity of Christ, but also talks about how in Adam we all die. So in Christ, when we're in Christ, we all live. We're all forgiven. We're all made new. We're all made alive. We're all part of the family of God. All right, so... That's kind of where we ended up last time, so, and, and we ended up with this phrase, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So as in Adam all die, what are we talking about there? What, why does he say in Adam all die? So as in Adam all die. What's he saying there to us? Okay. And he's tying it to the story of Adam and Eve. Which is interesting in that there are believers out there today who question this story of Adam and Eve as a biblical story. 
And that's interesting to me because I don't know how you get around Paul in Corinthians and Romans talking about Adam as an actual human being, you know, the progenitor of all mankind, the father of all mankind, and talking about how that in Adam we all die. Because we are all offspring of Adam, because we're all born humans, we all have inherited death, physical death. So anybody who's born dies. I mean, that's a universal truth, right? The death rate right now in America, yeah, 100%. Everybody dies, right? There's nobody who just goes on living and living. Everybody comes to, some people might live to 20, some people might live to 80, some people might live to 120, but everybody dies. In the Word of God, we find people living to almost 1,000, but everybody dies. Because why? Because of what Adam did. Because as our father, he sinned. He brought sin into this world. And because of that, he passed on death to all of us. What a horrible thing. <laughs> you know, what's wrong with you, Adam? Why did you do this to us? And as soon as you get there, then look at the other side. Because what does he say? But in Christ, all will be made alive. And there's this theme, and I, and I hope that you grab a hold of this. There's this theme in this passage and in Scripture as a whole of mankind taking God's grace, God's gift, God's wonderful goodness to us and finding a way to devastate it, to destroy it, to, to take the goodness and just wring every last drop out and make it into a mess. Whether it's personally in your own life, God gives you a new day and you take that day and you turn it into some kind of mess, or whether God's given you, you know, uh, some skills, some abilities, some talents, and, and you've used it for selfish ends or you've just wasted it. We have this ability as human beings individually to wreck the goodness of God. But collectively as humanity, we have the ability to wreck the goodness of God and take good gifts that he gives us, things like sexuality, and pervert it and twist it into something that God didn't intend it to be and, and take away all of the sacredness of it while trying to say we are enjoying it more. Like we just have this ability in humankind to wreck God's goodness. But God doesn't leave it wrecked. See? God restores. God is a redeemer. God is a savior. God is a rescuer. And so I come to God with the mess of my life and I say, God, I blew it again. And God goes, great, let's go get to work on this. Let's restore. Let's heal. Let's lead you out of the darkness into light. And, and the Apostle Paul being an example of it doesn't matter how dark you've gotten, how far off the path you've gone, no matter what is on your list of stuff, God is a restorer for all those who come to him. And he offers to restore anyone who comes to him. You read in the end of Revelation, it says, whoever will may eat of the tree of life. Come. The bride says, come. <laughs> come, eat of the tree of life. Come. And the, the invitation is extended to any messes, to any circumstances, to anybody's life, to anybody's life story, to come and find redemption and restoration. And so that sense there that in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. And so the idea there is that God, there is no case that is too far off. There's no buddy that's too far lost or too far gone that God cannot, by his grace and his power, reach down and bring rescue to them. I'm so thankful to serve a God like that that I can say to anybody, it doesn't matter what you've done. God already knows, he already knew about it before you were born. And he died for you anyway, because he loves you anyway. And he wants to save you, and he wants you to be a trophy of his grace. I'm so thankful to serve a God like that, aren't you? 
It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Now, a little bit of a theological discussion for just a second. Um, it says here, so just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So in the first part of that verse, all die in Adam, who are we talking about? All. What does all mean? Anybody and everybody. So then, and I've heard this argument made in this verse, the same word is used in the second half of the verse. So in Christ, all will be made alive. And it's been used to say that that means that basically everybody on earth eventually will be in Christ and will be made alive. Christ's sacrifice as for the sins of the world will eventually be applied to everyone. What's wrong? What's wrong with that? Why wouldn't that be the case? Because I don't believe that's the case, but why wouldn't that be the case? What, can we find anything here, or is there any clues anywhere that tell us anything different? Okay. Those who belong to him. It, in a parallel phrase, like as, as in an explanatory phrase right next, it's why when you hear people say, don't take a verse out of context, right? If I just look at that verse, I could make the argument, and I've heard people make the argument that there's universal salvation, that everybody gets saved because Christ died for the sins of the whole world, and so everybody eventually gets saved. But context tells you in the next verse that he's talking about those who belong to Christ. And in fact, in that verse, what it means is all who are in Christ will be made alive. And who are the ones in Christ? Those who have believed, those who have placed their trust, those who have chosen to give their lives to him. So it's not, you know, whether you want to or not, eventually you're going to be saved. It is those who have chosen to respond to the message of salvation. Those who are in Christ will be made alive. The promise is there. They will be made alive. It's not an iffy thing. It's not a hope so, wish for it. You don't have to pray real hard about being resurrected someday. It's a gift. It's given to you. It's a guarantee. It was guaranteed at the death of Christ when he rose again from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee you and I will be raised if we are in Christ. So once I place my trust in Christ, I find, just like I did with Adam, I found death passed along to me by the actions of one man. Now I have life passed along to me by the actions of one man. And so there's this uh, restoration, this redemption that happens from the mess of mankind into the grace and the goodness of God. Does that make sense? All right, so then he says, but each in turn. So now he's going he's to turn and talk about the end of time. Here, okay, so he talks about each in turn. So Christ, the first fruits, which is well, you know, on Easter Sunday when he rose again from the dead, he is that first fruits. And so, in one sense, Christ is the beginning of the final resurrection. Even though it's been thousands of years since Christ rose from the dead, there is a connectedness to the harvest by the, using the word first fruits, and we are part of the same resurrection as Christ is. The difference, to me, the thing that makes that important is the nature of Christ's resurrection was different than any other resurrection in history. And we mentioned this last week. Do you remember what's the difference between Christ's resurrection and other resurrections? Christ never died again. All the other resurrections, Lazarus and the widow of Nain's daughter and you know the, the, the little boy, the widow's son in, in Old Testament, they all died again. It's like they died, they were resurrected, then they died again. Christ was the one who rose, and no longer will he die, never again. And his resurrection is the one we partake in. His resurrection is the one we follow suit in. So when we are raised again to life, 
There will be no more death, no more dying, no more sorrow, no more pain. There will be the old things have passed away, and God has brought us into the kingdom of his light. And because of that, we live eternally in that, in that thing. So Christ is the first fruit. And then it says, so he, he was raised on Easter morning. Christ's resurrection begins the resurrection of the righteous. And then it says, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So that's where we get that idea that the resurrection of Christ is, that applies to or, or fills into all of us who belong to him, all of us who are in Christ as well, right? Um, but I want you to kind of think with me about this because this is where some of that eschatology stuff that we did at the beginning of the year comes out. Those who belong to who? To who? Christ. Okay, now, theologically... Who are the people who belong to Christ? The Jews? New Testament believers are spoken of as being in Christ. You, the Jews are God's people in the Old Testament, right? They are God's chosen people, but they are never said to be in Christ unless they've become a believer in the New Testament like New Testament believers, unless they've accepted Christ as their Savior. So you've got this nation of Israel that has promises of resurrection and restoration of the kingdom and all that in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, you have this group of people that carved out as the body of Christ, the people who are in Christ, this terminology over and over again. So the church, those who have believed, those who have trusted, are in Christ. Then he says, So he says, Christ was the first one, and it says, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And when he comes is clearly Jesus, because God the Father is never spoken of as coming back to earth. Jesus is spoken of as coming back to earth. And so those who belong to him are those who belong to Jesus. So this implies that there is a resurrection of Christians exclusively. Not Old Testament saints, but Christians. Does that make sense? So when we start talking about, uh, we, we, when we went through the, Stuff in eschatology at the beginning of the year, we talked about the possibility of a, a time when Christ comes back to gather the elect, uh, spoken of in Matthew 24. Christ comes back to gather those who are the elect, speaking of Christians. That is, seems to be at a different time than when God comes back to resurrect from the dead those who are God's chosen people, Israel, who have also been promised to be resurrected. God's chosen people have been promised to be resurrected, but they're not spoken of as being in Christ. Now, you could argue, and many people do, that the only way you ever get saved is by believing in Christ, which is true. Okay? The sacrifice of Christ was, was foreshadowed and, and called to faith in the Old Testament, but the, the fine line here between it is, would, we, would the New Testament talk about those Old Testament followers of God, those Old Testament people of God, ever as being in Christ? Um, and we don't find that in the Scripture. So, that's why people start to go, well, there's this resurrection for believers because it says Christ is the first fruits, and then those who belong to him. When he comes, those who belong to him, right? And so there, that's why it lo looks at like there's a maybe a, se a second coming where he resurrects those who are of Israel, and that's Zechariah 14 and, and other passages in the Old Testament, that when he comes, when he returns to the earth, when he comes to set up his kingdom, when he comes to restore the kingdom, there's a resurrection of Old Testament saints. So is there another time before that 
when he comes and resurrects believers, that's how people get to a separate, like the rapture idea and that kind of thing. It doesn't mean that's the truth. It doesn't mean that that's right. This is all kind of hazy and cloudy. But I wanted to point that out to you because people jump in on that and then they start to say, well, this, this means something very specific. And there is foundation for that here theologically. Does that make sense? Do you have questions about that? Or thoughts, if you've got, I mean, I don't, if you disagree, eschatology is certainly something we can disagree over because there's lots and lots of stuff out there. But so when he comes back, he will resurrect those who belong to him. Then Paul jumps to the end. He says, then the end will come. Okay, the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to the Father. And then after he says that, he kind of circles back around and he, he talks, talks through all that stuff a little bit more. Some see the word then, and, and there's grammatical reason to see the word then as signifying a gap in time between the resurrection of those in Christ and those at the end. I, I put down there Matthew 24 and 25, and I hope, this is part of, let's just do this aside, this is part of why we do Bible study. I hope that if you study the word of God, that coming to Bible study on Wednesday night stirs up a desire for you to study deeper and more. And maybe brings thoughts to you that you would have never had if you were just alone by yourself with your Bible. But then I hope that that stirs you to dive into some of those things, investigate some of those things. That this is fuel for your Bible study and not a replacement for your Bible study. Does that make sense? Because it's, I, I, it's, you can go out to, uh, to eat and somebody can make the, fe- the meal for you and that's a wonderful thing. But that it's not the only way that we feast on the Word of God. And so I hope that this stirs a desire in you to dig in. If this isn't the topic, so be it. But this is the topic that's in front of us, so I'm going to throw some things at you that let you cross-reference over. Matthew 24 and 25 is a long discourse from Jesus, and it begins with him talking about how he gathers the elect from the four winds and the four corners. And then it talks about all this stuff that happens on the earth. There's this sense of tribulation and you know r- people wanting to be buried by the rocks and uh, fall on us and save us from the wrath and whatever. And then at the end, there's a redemption of God's people, Israel. So there seems to be this intervening event in Matthew 24 and 25, this time frame in between where God pours out judgment on the earth after believers are gone, but before Israel is rescued, right? Again, these are hints and, you know, mentions and kind of like aside things. They're, they're prophetic, so they don't, it's not literally a timeline, but it's what people do to start connecting the dots as they go through those things. So uh, when he talks about the end will come, then the end will come, some would see a, a gap there between he comes back and he gathers the righteous and then the end will come. And the end here means the final end, but also means the completion, the fulfillment an end to the work that God has been doing since the beginning of time. What work has God been doing since the beginning of time on earth? What has been his plan, his work, his project that will come to the end when all's done? Reconciliation, redemption, restoration. Like, does that get you excited? That, well, I mean, we're in a spot in our in our time, in our country right now, where you can find a lot of reasons to be overwhelmed, discouraged, depressed about what's going on, whether it's the political landscape or just what you see happening around us. 
You go to a kid's baseball game and you see the tempers flare and the people and you're like, well, what's going on? Or you go out to, you know, uh, you know, trick-or-treating and you've got to check candy for kids and make sure that somebody's not trying to snatch them. You can get very heavy and discouraged about what kind of world do we live in? And then you can hear about uh, stuff that happens around the world. And, you know, there, there was just a, uh, an order that the United States made that we, would, we will stop importing goods that come from known slave labor. Slave? In today's world, there's slaves? Yeah, there are people who are literally bought and, and put into slavery to work for the profit of others. And the United States has just said, if we know about it, you can't, you can't sell here. You can't bring it in here. But it reminds you about the evil that's in this world. It reminds you about the devastation. You, you hear stories of abuse. You hear stories of, of drug addiction. You hear stories uh, of abandonment and, and, and kind of all different things that just can wreck your soul if you don't know that the end will come. That God who has been at work since the beginning to give mankind an opportunity to find redemption, wholeness, and healing in his power then you can get really, really heavy and really, really dark and really, really discouraged quickly, can't you? But here's what I want you to know as believers. The end will come, and God will fulfill his work. God will restore. God will heal. God will make whole. And that is an incredible promise because you've made a mess in your life. I've made messes in my life. I've suffered at the hands of other people's messes, and they've suffered at the hands of mine. God will restore it all for those who are his. And there will come a day where every tear is wiped away, where every pain is hurt, where every broken heart is mended, where every sorrow is, is completely put back together. Isn't that amazing? That, that no matter how evil our world is, our God is greater. And the end will come. It is not iffy. It is not far off, way out there. It's absolutely certain. And Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection, remind us, Easter Sunday morning reminds us that the end will come, that God will win, and as it says here, he will reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. And that is a great, great truth. So we should be bold and we should be excited and we should be energized for the world in which we live because there is never a day where we are without hope. Because ultimately we know, no matter what path our lives take, in the end, God will fulfill his purpose of redemption, reconciliation, restoration. God will heal. God will make whole. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isn't that cool? So when he talks about the end will come, to me that's such a great, great thing. Um, that final restoration where God sets back in order all that has been destroyed and distorted from the original design. And so it's kind of like this. If you rewind back to Garden of Eden, and God makes the earth, and God makes all of creation and the whole universe, and he makes it beautiful, and he makes it good, and he makes the garden to produce uh, fruit and trees, and he gives work to, to mankind, tend the garden and whatever, but it wasn't hard work. It was pleasant work, and it was work that was in fellowship with him. And so literally every day you get up and you do stuff you enjoy, and it's, a, it's just a, a place dripping with the blessings of God. This is the creative desire of God for us. And mankind does what? Throws it away. And, be, and ever since then, the life that we've lived is not the life that he designed for us. 
It's why when we, if someone dies, your soul is wrecked. Or when you contemplate losing, losing someone that you love, it's just, it's too much to bear. Why? We were never meant to lose people. God did not design our souls to say goodbye to people we were bonded to like that. We weren't supposed to die. We chose death, but we weren't supposed to. So guess what? God said, I'm not going to leave you in that. I'm going to come make a way to restore so that one day you can experience exactly what I wanted you to experience. I'll throw away this earth and the heaven, and I'll make a new one where we don't have to say goodbye, just like I didn't want you to have to say goodbye, where we can live forever, where we don't have to suffer with the you know, bodies wear out and we're tired and subject to misunderstanding and limitations and all this stuff. And our, our, our relationship with God is, is more distant than he wanted it to be and, and less concrete and less real. And it's all going to be exactly what he designed for it at the beginning. And so the power of God is able to come overcome all of that so that the end is certain. And we should live like the end is certain every single day. All right, so and then before we go to uh, the next part of the verse there, this, it's an interesting thought here to think about this interaction between the Son and the Father. Because God the Father is one. Uh, God the Son is one. God the Spirit is one. They are, it's one God, right? But there are three persons in this one God, and I don't exactly know how to explain that because I don't get it. I don't understand that, right? People are like, well, it's kind of like water can be vapor and liquid and solid. Not really, because <laughs> it can't be all of those at the same time. You know what I mean? Like, it's one state or the other. It's like an egg that's got a shell and a yolk and a white. Not really, because those are three different parts. The, the idea of the Godhead is every single one is fully God as much God as if there was only the only one. But they are three distinct persons in their interaction with humankind, in their role within the Godhead. And so there is this division of work among the persons. When I get saved, if I've received Christ, one person of God comes to take up residence in me. Which person is that? Holy Spirit. Now people say invite Jesus into your heart, but you don't invite Jesus into your heart that way. You, you give your life to Jesus, but you, the Spirit is the one that comes and dwells in you, lives in you, right? At the same time, you don't say, God the Father died on the cross. You say, God the Son died on the cross, right? Every bit God as God the Father and God the Spirit, but a unique person in that Godhead with a unique role and unique interaction. Here it talks about when Jesus comes back, not when the Father comes back and not when the Spirit comes back because the Spirit's already here. But when the Son comes back, He will gather up those who belong to Him. Okay? So there is this uniqueness, this separateness in the unity. And that's why it's called a tri-unity or a trinity. It is three in one. Okay? So when you hear the word trinity, that's a kind of a made-up word that means three in one, a tri-unity, a, a three in one. How does that interact? I, I don't know. I don't get it. I don't understand. I do know this, that when the Bible talks about Jesus dying on the cross, it talks about the Father, in essence, turning his back on the Son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus bears the sin of all mankind and the Father turns away. And so this, this eternally coexistent, completely, infinitely unified God 
is divided for us, is separated for us. That, that's a mind-boggling truth to get around, to get your head around. And so there is this forever unity that in that moment somehow was different and, and painfully, uh, catastrophically different as Jesus paid the price for our sin. The price was not the pain, the physical pain of the cross. The price was the separation from the Father that you and I were co- are, are destined to endure in our sin unless someone steps in for us. And as an infinite God, he suffered the separation from the Father infinitely so that whoever would believe in him could have eternal life. So there is no limit to his sacrifice. When it talks about, you know, he died for the sins of the world, I don't believe he means he, there was some list of sins out there and they were all like, okay, we got the whole list, let's put it on Jesus. I believe it was like this. He died and paid the penalty for sin in an infinite matter so that all the sin that ever has occurred could be covered or, or paid for in a propitiation by Jesus Christ. So there is this idea within the Godhead of this division of personality, of role, but there is this unity that is unimaginable. Just like I'm one person, I can't imagine, you know, being mad at, you know, the other part of me, even though there's not another, like, I don't get it, right? I just don't get it. That's the idea here, is within the Godhead, there's unity, but there's distinction. So he says that the Son, at the end, will hand the kingdom over to the Father. So within this Godhead, the Son has been given the kingdom, the the right to rule. And this ministry throughout history to bring everything under his power so that at the end, in the fulfillment of it all, he can hand it over to the Father. Okay, so interesting thought. I don't exactly know what to do with that, but but there is this Jesus Christ is at work, bringing the world to its conclusion and doing this work, and it says what he's going to do. You know, this seems like a weird discussion in the discussion of resurrection, but here's why. It talks about after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, meaning that the work of Christ in the current situation of the world is to work towards the time when this entire world and every human authority and every power that exists in this world is brought under him when he rules over the whole thing. And we looked at that in, in eschatology as the kingdom of God, the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth when he rules with a rod of iron. And so there's definitely a sense of that coming in the future. But he's talking about he destroys dominion, authority, and power, meaning that Christ does not just put it under him. He removes it from existence. So when we get to heaven... When we're in eternity with him, there will be no authority, no power, no dominion except God. He'll be the only authority there is. It means we won't be like, you know, sectioned out. You're in charge of this person, this person's in charge. There is no human division. We are unified in following the one our Heavenly Father. So there isn't like, well, you're the governor, but you're the president, and you're the world leader. Like, none of that stuff. It's, there's no you know, stratification of society in eternity. It's all one. And there is no human authority. There is no human power. There is no force that could work against him because he has all the power, which is the way that it is from the beginning. 
Right now, we have the illusion of power. The Bible talks about in Romans 13 that God gives people, humans, authority, and we exercise it in this world. You know, I'm, as mom and dad, I have authority over my children, and I tell them what to do, you know, and then we raise them up, and there comes a time where we transition from that role into a different role, not as their authority, but maybe as a, you know, uh, someone who's a, uh, rooting for them and, and advising them and, you know, giving them uh, encouragement for the, the things God's called them to do. So there's different roles in human authority. Uh, in, in church, we have, you know, authority where as an elder or a pastor, we have accountability, but we also have the right to make choices and say what happens in church. Um, you know, you've got police officers and they, they have authority over civil matters. You've got judges. You, so we've got human authority all over the place because we're unruly as people. So there's these stratification. That's part of it. But the other part is there will be no power that can rise up against Christ. There will be nothing in this world, nothing in our existence that is able to or has any uh, independence to come against him as it has been for our entire existence. For everything we know, there has always been a war, right? One day there will be no more war. The war will be settled. The war will be over. And he will destroy it all. And so no other power will ever exist again in the end. So that means that the powers that exist right now exist in part because he's bringing this world to its, to its fulfillment, to the end of its you know, whole idea, its design. And it's, it's meant to, I guess in part, display the fact that we are unreliable with power. We are unreliable with authority. So we're going to want to give it to him. You know the, the passage in the Bible where it talks about we, we bring our crowns and we throw them before the Lord? Crown is a symbol of ruling, and, and we recognize we don't rule, you rule, right? So there's this, this desire for him to be the only rule, as opposed for us to have some power of our own. You rule, because you're right. You're my Savior. You're my God. And so that kind of idea there. And it says, he must rule until he has put all enemy under his feet. He reigns. He must rule. He does rule. He rules right now. Nothing in this earth is beyond his power. Nothing is, you know, it, it can get a little messy when you talk about people making choices. And if he rules, why does he let them make that choice? Well, that's how he chose to run this world. He chose to run this world by saying, I will be over everything, but I'm going to give you a say in the choices that you make. Your choices will never defeat my plan or my purpose because the end will come. But you're responsible for your choices. And so there, he rules now. And in the way that he rules, it is we can be sure that this world comes to the end that God says it will come to, that nothing will sidetrack that or derail that. It will come to the end God says it will come to because Jesus rules. And this is where you get back to resurrection. He rules until the end has come. And then he says, and the last enemy to be defeated is death. How is death defeated in the end? Have you picked up on it? Because it's wiped out. Any other thing? Because there's a resurrection. Death doesn't win. There's a resurrection. He has a power even over death. Right now, you could debate, oh, the, 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 you know, the most certain thing in our life is death. Yeah, guess what? The most certain thing in your life is resurrection. That even though I die, I will live. There's this finality of the victory over death. And Christ demonstrates it on the cross and on Easter morning, 
and it comes to its foolish completion at the end of the age, when the end of all things comes, when we are resurrected, and death is defeated forever, so that it is wiped out, so that it is not, it is not a meaningful word anymore. Can you imagine what it will be like to live without ever wondering if you're in danger of dying or someone you love is going to die, wondering if you're going to hear about somebody who's died or someone who might die, or like that sorrow that is just part of the fabric of our life, gone forever because he must rule until he puts everything under his feet and the last enemy to be defeated is death. There is nothing that can stand before our God, nothing that can stand before our God. And so because of that, we have this hope, and the hope starts with the resurrection. It is essential to the end because in the end, death is destroyed. And that last enemy is death. Uh, let me just do this with you as we kind of finish our thinking for the night. If death is the last enemy, what other enemies will be destroyed in the end? So think with me. Because we, we think about the enemies of God. When you think about the enemies of God, you think about the unsaved, you think about demons, you think about Satan himself and, and warring against him, you know, the enemies of God. And so it, it, if it said the last enemy to be defeated is Satan himself when he's thrown into the lake of fire, like, okay, that makes sense. But that's not what he says. The last enemy to be defeated is death. And so as I think about death, I think about the it is an experience in this life that is part of humanity, that is awful, that wasn't supposed to be here, but we chose it, so we brought it on ourselves. It is an, a, a reality that we live with every day that we almost can't imagine not living with, but wish, we wish with all our hearts we didn't have to live with. It is a source of great pain, great sorrow, great emotional expenditure, um, whether it's happened or whether we're in anticipation of it happening, it's a source of great fear. So that enemy is going to be defeated, and it's the last one to be defeated. Are there any other human experiences or human realities that are would fall in that kind of a category of the enemies that will be that he will defeat uh, in the course of defeating everything and putting everything under his feet? What else is Jesus Lord over? What else does he rule over? What else can we be sure that in the end it will be destroyed and defeated and, and put away? Hatred. Starvation. That reality, right? What else? Disease. I mean, as you start to contemplate that, misunderstanding, insecurity, betrayal, like things that are just just part of human that's what happens in humanity everything evil everything harmful everything deadly everything that you know eats at my soul that destroys me in, in certain ways or fractures my psyche every single thing that is unhealth he defeats you know what i mean and i mean unhealth like you know sickness but sickness being a part of it but i mean anything that isn't eden you know, anything that isn't of the original creation, the original design, everything that came about because of sin is an enemy that will be defeated. So when we talk about you and I being part of the kingdom of God, we're, we're uh, people who believe in the kingdom of God. One day I will live in a kingdom where hatred is gone, 
where gossip is gone, where jealousy is gone, where all of these things, all of these realities of humanity are gone, where you know, people don't betray you and you can trust what someone says and all that stuff. Since I know that's where I'm going, one of the invitations of the resurrection here for us is to live as kingdom dwellers today. To live as people that live like I'm living in the kingdom in terms of I don't need to be full of hate. I don't need to betray people. I don't need to gossip. I don't need to slander. I don't need to lie. I don't need to, right? I don't need to have all of the enemies at play in me. And so I embrace the kingdom as I embrace the promises of what will come. As I let the king rule in me today. One day, his rule is absolute. Today, his rule is invited. Will you let him rule in you? And what's the downside of letting him rule in me? I have to give up myself, but that's kind of the upside, isn't it? Like the upside is I give up myself. And who's the source of all my problems? Me. (laughs) But my humanity doesn't like that. So it feels like a downside to my humanness. But in reality, it's what I, my soul longs for. And so when that day comes, I'll be filled with great joy when that's realized. But I don't have to wait for that day for me to live in it. I can live in the resurrection today. I can live in the power of Jesus Christ today. He is Lord of all. He's Lord of the things that have broken your heart. He's Lord of the things that people have said about you. He's Lord of all of that stuff. He's Lord of the losses that you've suffered and the the grief that you've borne. And he's Lord of it. And he will heal it. And you can start to experience that healing today as you live like you belong to the kingdom. As you let him rule in you. Let him be your savior today. Let him bring that stuff to you right now. Isn't that pretty cool? I think that's amazing. And I think that's such a great source of um, gratitude and thanksgiving uh, to our Lord. So, He will destroy all enemies. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, meaning all other enemies will be destroyed. Jesus is Lord, Lord over all. And one day, everyone will know it. But today, we should know it, and we should live like it. So 